back when I used to be a teacher at a Catholic school, not here, a different one, the religious education would use the classrooms at night. And anyway, it was always referred to as religious ed, religious ed. And anyway, one of the fourth grade teachers, one of her students one day asked who religious ed was. Because the student um, just assumed it was some kid that was just way too religious. But, um, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we open in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature, and your church gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments. May advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we've gone through two councils. So last week we went through Nicaea in 325, the first council of Constantinople in 381. And I tell you, this stuff, it doesn't write itself. I mean, it would make a great soap opera slash miniseries. As I was reading through and refreshing up on all this stuff, it's really interesting. Um, it's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It would, like... The drama, I just think of like the different BBC series, that if they were to make one of the drama of the politics of the early church, um, that'd be a lot of fun with a lot of interesting characters. So anyway, we ended last week, 381, and Arianism was finally done away with in name, that it still continued off in the Germanic tribes where the Arians had sent their missionaries. So you had those Arian heretics up there, and when they start coming to the Roman Empire, they'll cause a little more trouble again. But in general, within the Christian empire, Arianism was done. Huzzah. And if you remember, the last thing we had was the Council of Constantinople trying to argue that Constantinople was being the new Rome, and therefore the Archbishop of Constantinople, shouldn't he be second in place in the church only to the Pope? And when they sent the documents for the Pope to promulgate them and to... um, make them official ecumenical councils, they kind of left that part out of the stack of papers that they sent, so it was never actually made official. Now, that's going to be an important point because it's going to come up again. Now, what we're going to talk about today when we go through Ephesus and Chalcedon is the key theme of these is going to be the rivalry between Alexandria and Constantinople. And where this really comes from, give a little background, was that in the early church, as the apostles were going out and spreading the faith and starting new churches, that there was 18 bishoprics in the church that were called apostolic sees, meaning that they could trace their lineage of their bishop directly from one of the apostles. Um, There's a bunch of ones you would have heard of, like Alexandria and Jerusalem, but there's ones that don't even exist anymore, like Aquileia, which became the bishopric of Venice later on, but that there was 18 of them. And out of those 18, what happened just out of custom, not out of particular teaching, was that several of them, and this is something I assume most people know, several of them got particular positions of prestige and authority within their region. Not for a theological reason, just because it became the custom to look to them as the local authority. So these became called the patriarchs or the patriarchates. And you had Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Rome. And actually, what's all, one's always left off and forgotten because it doesn't exist anymore is the one I just mentioned of Aquileia, which is in northern Italy, right outside Venice. That was actually a, considered one of the patriarchs. But if you're not around anymore, you get left off the list. So anyway, out of these, though, the, Rome obviously very much had primacy, being the successor of St. Peter. And this will be a key theme when we get to these councils. But the Archbishop of Jerusalem, that basically all of the churches of Palestine, all the bishops of Palestine, that their first sort of court of appeals, would, if they had a problem, was they would appeal to 
him, but every bishop in the world at any time had the right to always appeal directly to Rome, being the head. So you had Jerusalem. Alexandria was extremely powerful. It was, and part of this was because they were, frankly, filthy rich. That the bishopric of Alexandria, there was a lot of learned men. They had a great university. But they also had a monopoly on the sale of salt in Egypt, as well as papyrus and other things that just gave them this continual revenue stream. And they had a hundred different bishops in Egypt that were directly answerable to Alexandria, that he got to pick the bishops, consecrate the bishops, that he was directly over them. And then Antioch was the other one in Syria. Now, the great thing about Alexandria, if you had a really good guy like St. Athanasius in the, in the position, that was a really good thing. If you had a bad guy, it's going to end up with a lot of troubles. Now, when in the early 300s, actually not early 300s, when would it be? 320s, Constantinople becomes the new capital under Constantine, that that bishop there, what was this little podunk village, is now become, through all of this money being thrown around and building huge churches, has become a big, important city. It's kind of like with their harbor and the center of trade, the way that New York became in the United States. That's what Constantinople became in the East. And so Constantinople, more and more, wanted a piece of the pie. And one of the things that they really wanted was the way that Alexandria had authority over all the bishops in Egypt. They wanted authority over all the bishops in Asia Minor, because modern-day Turkey. Because Turkey, Asia Minor, was the largest concentration of Christians in the entire world. There was 100 bishoprics in Egypt. There were 300 in Asia Minor. Um, it was a big deal. And because of his position, Constantinople being an important city, he started getting more and more prestige, more and more um, authority in his area until we got to, like we said, the First Council of Constantinople where they tried to make themselves number two, taking Alexandria's traditional spot because Alexandria was traditionally viewed as number two. Now, what happens in this rivalry, though, was after the Council of Constantinople, so 381, the Archbishop of Constantinople croaked. He died. And so, because this is a new important bishopric, it's technically not under anywhere, all the other patriarchs in the East, they started scheming, because people in the church, they do love to scheme, and they started thinking, like, how can we get our man in the new position? And so what happened was there was this guy down in Alexandria. And like I said, Alexandria is great if you have a saint there. Not as great if you don't have a saint. And so the guy that was there that was not a saint was Theophilus. Not the Theophilus from the Bible. The Pope of Alexandria, Theophilus. Actually, that's what they call their bishop, the Pope of Alexandria. And so Theophilus... He started scheming of how he was going to get his man into Constantinople so that they could sort of spread his tentacles. And he even picked out the guy, one of his, one of his priests. He, was, he decided he, was, he had it all ready. He was going to take him up and make him the, the new bishop of Constantinople. But Antioch got there first. That, where, where is Theophilus? Theophilus is the Archbishop of Alexandria. Alexandria okay. So... Archbishop of Alexandria, Theophilus. And this is, we're going to mention a few people's names, and it'll get confusing, but it's mostly because we're going to mention Alexandria and Constantinople, because there's going to be this feud that's going to really develop between the two. So Theophilus, Archbishop of Alexandria, has his guy. But the Archbishop of Antioch gets there first, and he's friends with the wild card in all these debates always, the emperor. And so he picks the... Archbishop of Antioch, he picks one of his young priests, a really famous preacher who just, he was known far and wide for just having awesome, awesome homilies, named John. And so the emperor confirms and says, yep, John's going to be the new Archbishop of Constantinople. And Theophilus is not happy about this. And by threat of physical force, the emperor makes Theophilus come up and actually consecrate John 
much to his chagrin as the new Archbishop of Constantinople. He's not happy about it, and he does it, and he leaves in a tizzy afterwards. But John, known as the Golden Mouth Chrysostom, is the new Archbishop of Constantinople. So St. John Chrysostom. And so what happens, though, was that there develops a bit of a rivalry between the bitter and jealous Theophilus and St. John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople. And so, like I said, this is going to be the, the, the key theme, is you're going to have, it's going to seem like one saint in Constantinople, while you have a definitely not a saint in Alexandria, then it's going to switch, and then it's going to switch back. Meaning, one's going to have a saint, the other's going to have a scoundrel, and they're going to sort of take turns which side is in the right. So, in the rivalry here, between the two, um, that the- Theophilus, one of the things that he started doing was he started in his zeal for, remember he came after St. Cyril. And what was St. Cyril arguing? With, against the, not sorry, St. Cyril, after Athanasius. And what was Athanasius arguing against? He was arguing against Arianism, the people that were saying that Jesus wasn't fully God. And so Theophilus, he tried to take sort of Athanasius' arguments and against arguments against Arianism, and he was not Athanasius. He was not that bright. And so he started trying to go after those Arians, and the stuff that he was saying wasn't right either. So he was starting to say, whoa, Jesus, and he was actually the roots of what's going to become as Nestorianism, the idea that instead of having one person who has... So one person, the second person of the Trinity, but two full natures of fully divine and fully human. He, going after those pesky Arians, is going to start trying to argue that there's two persons, two, um, yeah, does that make sense? That you have a human Christ and a divine Christ, but they're two separate persons. It's the roots of Nestorianism, and he is going to get himself into theological hot water. Now, What happened was Theophilus finally gets accused of heresy because he is a heretic. And the emperor, who just wants unity, says, all right, we're going to hold a trial. We're going to put Theophilus on trial and get rid of this heresy. So the emperor says, John, you need to put Theophilus on trial. And John says, no, I'll write him some letters. I'll explain to him where he's gone wrong. And he does so, and Theophilus in turn accuses John of heresy. That's what people love to do. Heretics love to accuse the, their accuser of heresy, just turn it around on him. But John says, we can't, I can't put him on trial. I'm the Archbishop of Constantinople. I don't have any authority over the Archbishop of Alexandria. That's the Pope's job. But the emperor gets mad about this and says, well, fine. In that case, he invites Theophilus over. Let's put John on trial. So, because somebody's got to win, and he just doesn't care which one it is. So, that's what they do. And so, the, the emperor, and part of the reason this happens is John had actually insulted the emperor's wife by pointing out her public sin. It's kind of like John the Baptist. It's not a good way to make friends. And so, they have this small synod called the Synod of Oak, Theophilus, and the, the, the emperor of Constantinople, and the result is they condemn John falsely. They make up all of these huge scandalous accusations and they depose him and they replace him with a bishop or not or with, a, with a priest that he had actually excommunicated and kicked out of Constantinople for being a heresy. So that insult to injury for John. Any questions about the convoluted? I mean, it gets kind of, like I said, this would make a great soap opera. Um, and John flees. And, but what he does is he flees to the West, and he writes the, he writes the Pope. He explains everything that's going on. And so the Pope takes John's side. And he sends letters to Antioch, to Alexandria, to Jerusalem, to Constantinople, saying, Theophilus is wrong, and John is right. And they need to re-accept John. They need to accept him as the rightful Archbishop of Constantinople or you're all getting excommunicated. And they did not. So that's what happened. 
Theophilus took all of the entire Eastern Church into schism because they all got excommunicated for what they did to John. So, um, this was around the early 400s, around 4 to 405. And then what happened? They're all in schism. It's not going well. But all of these guys that are excommunicated, as we always say, the greatest source of reform is death. Pray it comes quickly. What, they all die. So Theophilus dies. I mean, there's, so there's around a good 15-year period where the entire East is in schism in the 400s um, because they will not accept the, what the Pope says. They will not accept John as the rightful archbishop. And instead, they're siding with Theophilus, the heretic. And so Theophilus dies, and Antioch dies, the Archbishop of Constantinople dies, and what happens is there's a new Archbishop of Alexandria who is the nephew of Theophilus, and his name is Cyril. And Cyril was at first a little, maybe a little too trusting of his uncle that he had actually sort of gone along with and believed Theophilus, when Theophilus was saying that, oh, John is a scoundrel, he actually sort of was believing him. So when Rome had said, you need to accept John back, it took him a little while to to accept and recognize, okay, that his uncle was in the wrong. Nobody likes to think their own family was scoundrels, but that was the case. So even though John himself has already died, that the Pope still makes it conditional that for any of these churches to come back into communion, they have to enroll John as, into their list as the proper Archbishop of Constantinople and start praying for him. And so they all do it, and including Cyril, St. Cyril of Alexandria, who brings Alexandria back into communion. Now, this is all sort of leading up to what's going to lead towards the Council of Ephesus, because remember, rivalry, Constantinople versus Alexandria. That's the key theme. Now, St. Cyril is pretty awesome, and he's going to be the champion that's going to win at Ephesus. But anyway, what happened, though, is Constantinople, when that archbishop died, that one that had replaced John, they replaced him with a new guy who was pretty notorious, named Nestorius. And let me see if there's a date on here. In 428, Nestorius becomes the new archbishop of Constantinople. Now, Nestorius, in his misguided zeal, he once again, he's going to do the same thing that Theophilus was doing and start persecuting those Arians, and, but who he thinks are Arians. And who he thinks are Arians are all these Christians that are going around, for instance, calling Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God. So Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God. That all these Christians, that was a traditional title for Mary, and he heard that, and he th- it offended him in a way that Catholic uses that term nowadays, and a lot of times Protestants who don't know it, they're by this position. They're following the same position as Nestorius. But they thought, you know, that's offensive. Jesus, you can't say that God has a mother. That, that somehow diminishes, because his God somehow diminishes Jesus um, and his divinity. So shouldn't it be better just to say that Mary was the Christ bearer, that Mary gave birth to Christ, but not to God. And by doing so, he started... The, the, the controversy in his position was that Christ has two persons. You've got the divine Christ and the human Christ. So she's the, the, the mother of the human Christ, but not of the divine Christ. And when the traditional Catholic understanding was a pretty simple one, and it's just a basic logical syllogism that Mary equals Jesus' mom, Jesus equals God, therefore, Mary equals mother of God. That 
That was just the logical conclusion of Christ being fully divine. And it was actually a term used to affirm Christ's divinity. But, like I said, Nestorius, in his misguided zeal, he thought, but isn't it somehow saying that Jesus isn't fully divine because God can't have a mom? That's in physical terms. That doesn't make sense. And therefore, he ends up separating Christ's personhood into the divine person and the human person. Not the same. Now, and he actually was very proud of himself. He wrote the, a letter to Pope St. Celestine I saying, hey, you'd be so proud of me, more or less. These heretics are going around preaching the Theotokos, and they're attacking Christ's divinity. Therefore, I put them in their place, and, the, and, I am, and the Pope, when he read this, he's like, what on earth are you doing, man? And he, Because Nestorius was going around actively persecuting all the Christians that were actually preaching the orthodox position. So you have the zealous heretic persecuting the Christians for the sake of his heresy. Um, And this, word of this was spreading all over and finally came down to Cyril in Alexandria. And Cyril was quite disturbed by this. And so he put together, he actually wrote a letter to Nestorius, like telling him to stop. He wrote some tracts against him. The Pope wrote a letter to Nestorius telling him to stop. And so finally, Cyril said, you know what, there's only one option. And he put together a big dossier of all the stuff that Nestorius is doing, what he's teaching and everything, and he sent it to the Pope to sort it out. He's like, you know what, I don't have direct authority over him. The Pope does, so he sends it all to the Pope. And so what the Pope did was the Pope responded to Cyril and said, you are absolutely right. And in fact, I commission you as my representative to do everything necessary to deal with Nestorius. You have my full confidence. You have my full trust. So the entirety of the battle against Nestorius is going to be led by Cyril on behalf of the Pope. So Cyril started writing. First, he had a synod in Egypt where they formally condemned Nestorius' heresy. He started, he wrote these tracts called the Twelve Anathemas, where he went through Nestorius' false teaching and one by one just laid waste to them. And he started spreading this all around. And Nestorius, as with most heretics, though, had a bit of a martyr syndrome, and he just thought himself right and everybody else was wrong, and that the Holy Spirit would finally vindicate him. So what he did was he convinced, Nestorius actually, is the one that convinced the emperor to call an ecumenical council. Because he thought, if we have an ecumenical council, it will come down on my side, I just know it. And in fact, he, said, he thought that Cyril was the heretic. Um, because Cyril and his anathemas and everything, that Nestorius read this, and it sounded like heresy to him as because his position was the true orthodoxy. Um, this is the common theme of heretics throughout history, from the, from the storiest to Martin Luther. They think themselves the, the true orthodox one, and everyone else in the church has to be wrong. And just like Martin Luther, who tried to appeal to an ecumenical council to come down on his side, because he knew that, it, of course, it would, until it was pointed out to him that one had already condemned his position, that, and thus was born sola scriptura. But anyway... Um, Nestorius was convinced that truth would come down on his side, and so he got the emperor to call an ecumenical council. So the emperor did. 431, the emperor calls an ecumenical council in Ephesus, Asia Minor. Now, the problem, though, that's going to be for Cyril is that Nestorius, in the meantime, has won the Archbishop of Antioch, to his side. So it's not quite so simple. He now has some powerful allies. And the emperor likes him. What? Because he does. He's the emperor. Um, it's not a real one unless the pope affirms it. But it starts, I mean, the very first one was called by Constantine. And so this is the Caesaropapism of the East, of the emperor interfering in the church. So he calls the council. They're going to meet in Ephesus. 
He sends his representative, the emperor does, who's supposed to run the council, he thinks. The pope sends letters to Cyril, says, no, you're running the council. Um, do what needs to be done. So what happens, though, I mean, you've got basically this big showdown in Asia Minor. You've got the Cyril of Alexandria and his ally, which is the Archbishop of Jerusalem, versus the Archbishop of Constantinople in Antioch. And the Pope's on Cyril's side. Now, what they do is they get there, and Cyril sees when they get there that you've got Nestorius and his people that are there. And luckily for Cyril, remember when we talked about the Archbishop of Constantinople trying to get his authority over all of those bishops in Asia Minor? They all hate Nestorius, is the, the nice thing about that, is because Nestorius was persecuting them left and right for being good Orthodox Christians. So they're actually, his own bishops are going to side with Cyril. But, so you've got Nestorius, his bishops that hate him, even though he has some supporters. You've got the Archbishop of Jerusalem who shows up with his supporters, and Cyril who shows up with his. Now, Antioch, however, they stupidly decided instead of hopping on a boat, they're going to try to go overland, and they got delayed, and they were left in the desert. And so, the emperor's representative, who wants to give Nestorius his fair shot, says, okay, you need to wait until Antioch shows up. To which Cyril responds, you're the representative of an emperor, and you're not a prelate in the church, you have no authority here, and kicks him out. And instead, he opens the council without the Archbishop of Antioch because he's late. So he locks the door. And they systematically go through and condemn all of the positions of Nestorius and depose him as the Archbishop of Constantinople. Now you think, I mean, there was great cheers in the streets afterwards, um, and actually, the other one that was on their side was the Bishop of Ephesus. So he was very helpful in that he wouldn't let Nestorius or any of his representatives preach in any of his churches because um, he wasn't going to let heretics preach in his churches. And so they deposed Nestorius. They were um, praising in the streets that they were having a party. The God's will had prevailed. Huzzah. Isn't it all great? Now, In the meantime, however, the Archbishop of Antioch finally showed up, and him and Nestorius decide, you know what, this is garbage. Um, we do not like this, and they decide to have their own little shadow council, and that, you know what, they're going to say, you're not the real ecumenical council, we're going to have our own one while you're still meeting. And they go through, and they say, well, you, we declare you all heretics, we depose you, we depose you, Jerusalem. We depose Ephesus, We're, and they just start deposing people left and right, supposedly. Um, and, and then in the meantime, that, that remember the, the emperor's representative, who I imagine is this kind of dorky guy who's upset that he got kicked out, he goes whining back to the emperor. And so he comes back again, this time, with word from the emperor that the emperor says, you're going to start it all over and do this right. And once again, when he shows up, he gets kicked out. And showing up at the same time, were the three legates, which just means the representatives from the Pope. And the Pope's three representatives solemnly affirm with the Pope's seal of authority everything that the Council of Ephesus had already done. So they, um, and there's a, so they go through and they say, yep, Nestorius is done for. They affirm every, the, the anathemas of Cyril. And there's even a good quote from it, from speech at the council, from one of the legates when he says, no one doubts, nay, it is a thing known now for centuries, that the holy and most blessed Peter, the prince and head of the apostles, the pillar of the faith and the foundation on which the Catholic Church is built, Receive from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of the human race, the keys of the kingdom, and that to him there was given the power of binding and loosing from sin, who down to this day and forevermore lives and exercises judgment in his successors. So on the Pope's authority, which everyone 
there fully accepts as the successor of St. Peter and the supreme head of the church, Nestorius is deposed and kicked out. And further in that, they excommunicate the Archbishop of Antioch too for supporting Nestorius. Um, so, too bad, so sad. But it's not done there. That same Weasley representative of the emperor goes back to Constantinople complaining. And finally, the emperor is like, I've had enough of this. I don't know who's right. These people are deposing these people. These people are deposing these people. And so the emperor himself shows up with his army and just arrests everybody. Um, So he arrests all of the archbishops and takes them back and puts them in prison in Constantinople until it can be sorted out. And so finally, see, like I said, this is, you can't make this stuff up. So finally, they have to have uh, a meeting. They have a meeting where they have one of the representatives, one of these guys from the Pope. They actually let (coughs) Archbishop Antioch, he gets to be part of the meeting, though Cyril doesn't. They have a a little hodgepodge of guys to sort out what's going on, who's right. And they finally affirm, okay, the Ephesus Council was right. Um, Nestorius, he's rightfully excommunicated and deposed, and the emperor went ahead and kicked him out of the, the Roman Empire. But they decided to have mercy on the Archbishop of Antioch, and he could go back to being Archbishop. And that was the little bit of the compromise. And thus ends the Council of Ephesus. Oh, yeah, but not as bad as Chalcedon. (coughs) All right, so things are looking pretty good. You've finally had Nestorius kicked out. There's a a little bit of a a lull. After this, there's some peace in the empire that's going to last almost 20 years. Um, I always pronounce it Chalcedon, and then I looked up, according to YouTube, in this correct pronunciation thing, they say it's pronounced Chalcedon. So, we'll go with Chalcedon because I am in no way a language expert, so. Very far from it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, (laughs) yeah, who's going to challenge me? All right. Um... (laughs) Wow, that's good. All right, so anyway. And actually, interestingly, the Archbishop of Antioch and Cyril eventually reconciled because while the Archbishop of Antioch caused a bit of trouble here, he actually ended up repenting of it and was a pretty good man, and he ended up supporting the Orthodox side until he died. So that's a good side of it, showing that, you know what, just because you're a heretic or a supporter of a heretic doesn't mean you'll die that way. So he's a good example of repentance and ending up in a good state. Now, so there's a short period of peace, and in this time, (coughs) the Pope dies. So St. Celestine I dies. And he's replaced by one of his deacons, who gets made a priest and a bishop and the Pope, named Leo, who's going to be the first Pope to be given the title, the great, and he's going to well deserve it. Now, so there's a short period of peace. Once people, they make up, etc. Now, what happened, though, we thought things were bad before, is it's going to get a whole lot worse. And I'm going to write several names on the board in order to help keep them straight, because it's amazing how hard it is to keep Greek names straight. This is what I've noticed back when I would teach Roman history versus Greek history, that the Roman names are really a lot easier to keep straight. The Greek ones, it's impossible. The difference between Phidippides and Cleisthenes and Thucydides, there's a lot too many E's. But anyway, there's going to be a monk named Eutychus, the bishop of Constantinople, Named Flavian, which is actually a Roman name, but anyway. 
And the new bishop of Alexandria after Cyril, who not only is not going to be a saint, but he's the scoundrel of the story, because this time it flips around. And his name is Dioscoros, who he's an absolute scoundrel, but who, interestingly, I found out, is revered as a saint in the Coptic church. But anyway, I think it's just because he stands up against Rome. Now, what happened was you had this really popular 90-year-old monk in Constantinople named Eutychus, or Eutyches, what, Eutyches. And he was, once again, a very, kind of like Nestorius was zealous for trying to persecute the last heresy. He's going to be zealous for trying to preach against the new heresy. And so, the root of it, though, is it's, this is why it's important to know basic philosophical language and what words mean, and actually to measure your terms and to use them properly, because people, it can cause simple misusing of terms and, and speaking poorly can cause very long and lasting damage within the church. And it's a great historical example of that. Now, I won't talk about any contemporary situations. Now, anyway, so Cyril, in arguing against Nestorius, that when he was talking about how there is one person, in the second person of the Trinity, that Christ is only one person, the word that he used was a Greek word, I don't, whoops, physis is what he was to refer to person, the personhood of Christ. There's one physis, one person. Now, Eutyches was not a very bright man. And actually, that's going to be Pope Leo's response later on when talking about Eutyches. He can say, he has no malice in him. He's just ignorant and a little stupid. And frankly, that's exactly what it was. So he, in order to try to side with Cyril and preach against that Nestorian heresy, he started saying, yeah, Christ has one physis. But he didn't use it to mean person. He meant to use it to mean nature. Um, he got the, the meaning of the word wrong, and so he started going around and preaching, you know what, Christ has only one nature. He was a, a, a monophysite, is the word we use, the, the idea that Christ has one nature. And he was preaching it left and right, his monophysite heresy. Um, Christ has one nature. And the Archbishop of Alexandria, who might have been stupid, those two, but was also just malicious, he agreed with Eutyches, and the, together they go on sort of a, a, a rant of persecutions left and right of Orthodox Christians, once again, within the church. And this time, in the name of, of the Monophysite heresy, that Christ has only one nature. I mean, because the simple, I mean, the, the simple key Christological understanding, remember, is one person, but two natures. That this, it's amazing how long it takes to get this hammered out. That there's one person in Christ, the second person of the Trinity, but he has two complete natures, fully divine and fully human. He's 200%. So you had Nestorius, who, having trouble with this both and part, he tried to make it Christ into two persons. And then you've got the Monophysites here, and they're going to try to make him into only one nature. That he's sort of half God, half man. And so anyway, they're, they're both preaching this heresy. They're persecuting the Christians. So this is down in Alexandria and in Egypt. I mean, not in Egypt, and up in Constantinople. And what happens was Flavian, the Archbishop of Constantinople, this is going on in his diocese, and he tries to put a stop to it. And so they have a local synod up in Constantinople, and at the synod, they put Eutyches on trial, and he gets utterly condemned. They strip him of his priesthood. Well, they are not they, of acting on his priesthood. He can't celebrate the sacraments. He cannot preach. And they're actually probably a little harsher on the old guy because he's, he's 90 years old. He 
is a completely devotional in his preaching. He doesn't, he's not real bright. And, but anyway, they, they lay down the hammer. And this is extremely unpopular. Um, and Eutyches has some powerful protectors. The emperor, who, who likes him and thinks he's, an, I don't know why, but he, he thinks he's a great guy. And remember the Archbishop of Alexandria, who shared his position, who's also a heretic. Dioscoros. It's um, a good name. That one, see, Flavian sounds very Latin, Dioscoros. He doesn't get more Greek than that. But anyway, Dioscoros, down in Alexandria, he says, hold on, no, no, no. I utterly annul everything that you're doing, and it's very much Constantinople staring down Alexandria. Who has more authority? Who's going to win? And in the meantime, letters finally trickle over to Leo in Rome telling him everything is going on. And you can imagine Leo about lost it when he found out this entire thing was going on and nobody had even ever told him about it. Um, which, first of all, he, he was pretty annoyed about that they have this huge controversy and they, no one ever bothered to consult with him. No one bothered to even keep him informed. So... You've got Constantinople and Alexandria, that rivalry. They're staring each other down. And so the emperor decides that I hate people are arguing in my empire. We need to call another council. So in, I don't remember the exact date. I think it's 428. They call what's supposed to be the second council of Ephesus. The second council of Ephesus, called in 428 by the emperor. You notice it's not on the list of actual councils. In 428. And in the meantime, Leo, who's also had enough, decides, you know what? I'm tired of all these people arguing about these Christological heresies. I'm the pope. I'm putting an end to it. And so Leo wrote one of the greatest works in Catholic theology. It's short and sweet, but fantastic called simply the Tome of Leo, where instead of making a theological point where he tries to put forth an argument, he in no uncertain terms says, as the successor of St. Peter, I am putting it into this. Christ is fully God with one complete nature. He is fully, man, he completely spells out the hypostatic union, this great mystery, and says the matter is settled. Peter has spoken. Um, But, you're living in a time back then. Mail goes slowly. Um, by the time he's gotten this letter, by the time he's written his tome and he's ready to send it out, the new council at Ephesus has already been called by the emperor. So, even though he had sent this to Constantinople, he sent it everywhere, and it's amazing that just because the Pope says it doesn't mean people listen. But the new council is called. And the new council is a complete and utter travesty. In that what happens at the council is that Dioscoros takes over the presidency of it. And with the help of the emperor's military, who actually they bring into the council and they put it all the way around so they can have threat of death, they systematically condemn Flavian, depose him, and exile him, and this is before any representatives from the Pope can get there. They exile him, and he actually ends up writing an appeal to Leo, but because he, they, not only do they depose him, they beat the tar out of him so that he dies from his injuries three days later, and they start systematically going and deposing all the good Christians in the East. And when the Pope's representatives show up, they try to kill them, and they barely escape with their lives. And so, that's why... Pope Leo is later, he's going to call this the robber council and um, is going to, I don't have it here, um, and, and Pope Leo is going to, writing about this, say that everything there is utterly annulled as that they do as a false council. It's scoundrels doing stuff in the church, and so you've got Flavian, the true archbishop, he dies after he's exiled. You have all these people being deposed, um, all by the Monophysites, Dioscoros, um, the scoundrel from Alexandria. 
And Leo, doing what he can, he starts writing letters to the emperor saying, you got to stop this, and they are utterly ignored. And then what happens is a providence of history that the emperor, who liked Eutyches, liked Dioscoros, and he was the, the might behind them, he goes out to ride his horse, he falls off, and he dies. And his sister takes over the reins of the empire, and she immediately actually has executed um, the, the prime minister who was a big monophysite and was engineering all this. She has his head cut off, and then she marries this other a guy named Marcion, not to be confused with the heretic, um, a guy named Marcion, and makes him the new emperor. And Marcion is awesome and orthodox. And so what he immediately does is... The Pope had gotten no response, Leo, from all of his letters to the emperor, is that he receives a letter from Marcion, the new emperor, where he basically greets him as the successor of St. Peter, as the princess of the church, is what he calls him, the prince of the church, which is, we use the word princeps, meaning nowadays like prince, and we think of it as sort of an underling, but the princeps was a title reserved only for the emperor, that he is the emperor of the church. And he swears his undying loyalty to Rome, and he's going to do everything necessary to make it right. And so, he's, he promises, he's, he even says to the Pope, he's like, we'll have a new council, and you can be there personally. We'll even have it in Italy if you want. We'll do whatever you need to be done. And so, finally, the Pope agrees, and he says, you know what, we can have it in Asia Minor. I'll send my representatives. I trust you. We'll do it right. So, 451, the Council of Chalcedon meets in Asia Minor. And the representatives from the Pope come, and they systematically, the first thing that they do was they get there and they read um, the Tome of Leo and affirm that this is actually the good quote from it. Um, that this is the new authoritative teaching, and actually the word from the council was that the bishops called out, it is Peter who says this through Leo, this is what we all believe, this is the faith of the apostles. Leo and Cyril teach the same thing. Um, and so, and the supremacy of Leo is affirmed, and first and foremost, Dioscoros is deposed, um, Marcion exiles him, Eutychus, I believe, had died by then, um, the old dude. But anyway, he, he was, so he had, is sort of not a problem anymore. But anyway, and they just sort of, one by one, they go through and they put everything that was wrong, they put it aright at Chalcedon. There's not the great scandals going on at Chalcedon that you had at the robber council. There's not the great drama that there's going on at Ephesus. And the reason why is because you have a very holy emperor who is acting as on Leo's side and keeping everything going. And so this is the church and the Holy Spirit going through and cleaning house. And that's exactly what happens. Now, however, there is one last scandal, and that is after they've gone through and cleaned house, Chalcedon, the council hasn't officially ended. Remember, Archbishop of Alexandria, he's been deposed, Dioscoros, he's not there anymore, that the Archbishop of Constantinople, who's the new one, is a bit of a weasel. He sees his opportunity to finally get his piece of the pie that they've been wanting for so long. And so while the papal legates, the papal representatives, are not there, they're back sleeping at their inn or whatever, he calls everyone together, and they affirm another canon to the council without the Pope's permission, whereby they go through and they reaffirm that same thing they tried in 381, where they say that because the Pope has his authority, because Rome was the imperial center, they make no mention of him being the successor of St. Peter, then therefore, likewise, being the new Rome, the new imperial center, Constantinople's number two. And obviously there's no Archbishop of Alexandria to argue with this, and 
they go, yay, yay, um, it's affirmed, it's affirmed. Now, um, I mean, this is the only argument that Constantinople can try to make because they are not an apostolic see. They are not um, one of those ancient things that this is sort of his only argument he can try to make to make himself number two. And then what happens is the legates finally show up and they throw a fit that this has happened. They condemn it. They say that, that Leo um, does not accept this, and we're going to go, basically, we're going to go back to Rome and tell on you. So that's what they do. They get on their ship, and they get ready to go back, and the bishops there start thinking fast in their Weasley way, and like, well, we've got to win Leo to our side somehow. So they quickly write a letter to Leo to try to get it to him first. And the letter, when it comes, it just makes you want to vomit when you read it. It's all this flattery about, like, you are the head of the church. And, and actually, they never mention anything about what they actually did of saying that Constantinople being the new imperial center. They leave that language out entirely. And so they try to sort of sidle it in at the end, saying, since you, the apostolic light, shine, in you, the apostolic light shines in all of its splendor, you will often, with your customary care, see that Constantinople benefits from that brightness. So trying to say, like, it's because you're so wonderful, can't we just share in it a little bit? And Leo is completely not fooled. Um, he's not fooled. His representatives are not fooled. They come and they tell him what happened. And so Leo... Um, what he does simply is he writes his friend, the emperor, and he tells him what happened. And, and in do, so doing, he also says, and here's the good quote, that we dismiss it, we dismiss as without legal effect by the authority of the blessed apostle Peter. We quash it utterly by a general sentence, um, was Leo's acclamation of, or not acclamation, but his squashing of this principle that, that Constantinople's number two because it's the new um, Rome. And Marcion, the emperor, I would like to think of it kind of like a parent grabbing a kid by his ear, that he, um, the pope threatened to excommunicate the Archbishop of Constantinople and all the other ones unless they repudiated what they had said and came groveling back. And so the emperor writes Leo back and apologizes for them all and says, I will take care of it. And before you know it, all of the bishops in the East write these simpering letters to Leo begging forgiveness and affirming that, of course, they believe that he's the successor of Peter, the supreme of the church, and actually the archbishop of Constantinople. He tries to blame everybody else but himself in the letter. He says, you know what? I didn't want to do this, but all the other bishops, it was their idea. Um, I, of course, side with you. Um, but in a large portion, it's because the emperor was actually this is a good man, and this is the, I guess, the plus and minus of Caesaropapism, that when the, the state interferes in the church, if you have a good state, it can be okay. But when you have a bad state, it usually has terrible effects. But um, the end result is it is shut down. And, I mean, and that's a key historical thing because that's one of the key arguments that the East, they never give up on that they are going to keep trying over and over and over. And there's a reason why throughout the first thousand years of a united church, the archbishops of Constantinople spent more time excommunicated than not um, because petty politics and wanting to assert their place within the church. Um, but as you can see with Leo, he was very much affirmed and understood to be the supreme head of the church by everybody, even though when they tried to weasel their positions left and right. Now, does anybody have any, I guess we'll leave it there.